0: Good evening. Good to have you with us again this evening. Yeah, I go by Stripes every Sunday before I come to church, both in the morning and usually in the afternoon, and get something to drink. I walked in there a while ago and uh, went to pay the lady, and I didn't have enough change. The coffee that I got was fifty, and I only had like $1.25, and she let me skate. I said, you know, I'm sorry, I just don't have enough money. I'm a poor preacher, and she goes, I know, I've heard you. Um <laughs> This evening we're starting a series entitled Lies Christians Believe. I hope you'll be here with us on Sunday evenings for the next several weeks as we look at some of the lies that I think have been uh, propagated either in church or maybe by Christians in the religious world. Things like God just wants me to be happy, um, forgive and forget, things of that nature. And tonight we're looking at a sin is a sin is a sin. You've probably heard that before. And I wrote a, a blog not long ago on assurance of salvation, and one reader responded with this comment. She said, "Our preacher teaches that every time we sin, our name is erased from the book of life and is not rewritten in the book until we repent of that sin." He further states that if we sin at 12:14 and 55 seconds and die at 12:14 and 56. 56 seconds having not repented of the sin we will go to hell if this is true how can one ever have assurance if this is not true how does one prove it no wonder we struggle with assurance right I mean, I think over the years in our efforts to combat the once-saved-always-saved doctrine, we've kind of swung the pendulum too far to the other extreme, and we've kind of given this impression that, you know, I'm always teetering on being in or out of fellowship with God. You know, I'm I, I mean I'm in His good graces. I sin, oh, I'm out. Okay, and then I repent. Okay, I'm back in. I'm good again. Okay, I've sinned. I'm out. And then I, I repent. And I'm back in again. And we kind of give this impression that you're always in and out, depending on whatever state it is that you commit sin or repent, whatever. Folks, if that's how we gain assurance, we'll never have it. The problem becomes that we look at all sin in the same way. There is no doubt that all sin is a personal affront to a holy God. All sin is an offense to a holy God. You've heard me say that over and over again. But not all sin is the same. You know, it seems to me, if I'm going to die, I need to do it between 10 o'clock at night and 6 o'clock in the morning because that's when I sleep. And so if I pray for God to forgive me right before I go to bed, surely I'm not committing any sin in my sleep. And if I get up at 6 o'clock, then I start the day new again and no doubt I'm going to sin. So the best time for me to die is between 10 and 6. Or when we raise somebody out of the waters of baptism, shoot them in the head and that way we assure that they're going to heaven, right? We give them no other opportunity to sin. Our thoughts on assurance of salvation are so skewed and, quite frankly, pretty messed up at times. And sadly, many Christians live in perpetual fear, thinking, I hope I don't die before I have a chance to repent. I have a bad thought. I'm out of Christ. I'm out of of fellowship with God. I repent of that bad thought, I'm back in. What if we're driving down the interstate and somebody crosses the center line and hits us head on and kills us, and right before they hit us head on, we let a cuss word slip? So am I destined to spend all eternity away from God because of that one sin there? These are things that we're going to talk about this evening. My belief is that there are many things that we need to, well, not just many things, everything. When it comes to what we believe and our views on Scripture, we need to reassess, we need to be evaluating constantly, we need to, you know, take assessment of what it is that we believe, the doctrines that we buy into, and never take for granted that someone else who is teaching to us or preaching to us has it all figured out and we just accept it from them and we move on. I don't care if your daddy taught you one way your whole life, your daddy can be wrong. And you can be wrong for believing it. And so we've got to be careful. I never want to take one man or one woman's word for it. And you've heard me say that to you over and over again. Don't just take my word for it. Investigate for yourself. And you know, in things that are not even related to to religion or to spiritual things, there have been things that you have been taught as you were growing up. Things you were taught your whole life. And you get to be an adult and you go, you know what, my mom or dad probably wasn't exactly right on that. They're good people, they were sincere, they meant well, but they weren't exactly right on that. Or maybe I just take a different approach than they do, right? And there are all kinds of things that we were taught growing up. I mean, if you pop your knuckles, it'll cause arthritis. There's never been a study done to show that, that uh, popping your knuckles causes arthritis, right? Or you better put a coat on, you're going to catch cold. You know, cold weather doesn't give you a cold. And so there's a lot of things like that that we were taught our whole life that we just bought into and we just assume were true, even when it comes to biblical things. And so it's always to our benefit to be investigating and evaluating those things, making assessments to make sure that what we have believed in is right and true. I'll give you a for instance. Thomas Campbell is usually credited with saying, we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. There are some in the religious world that have taken that as a scriptural truth, that that's an absolute truth that appears in the Bible, and, and it's not. I mean, it's a good adage, a good rule of thumb. We don't even abide by it. We have announcements. That's speaking where the Bible doesn't speak, right? I mean, we do that all the time. I don't think that that's condemnable by any means. Overall, is it a good principle? Sure, but we've made that out to be something biblical that's an absolute truth, and it's not. I mean, we speak where the Bible doesn't speak all the time. It's just not in ways that's condemnable or things that are are wrong or necessarily are going to condemn us, but we need to Consider some of the things that we bought into, how much emphasis we put on those things, how much credence we give those things. So my goal of this series is to hopefully get us to rethink and maybe reevaluate some of the more common fallacies, or maybe even lies or just half truths that we have bought into. And we start tonight with this idea that that a sin is a sin is a sin. Now it is true, as I said, that all sin is an offense against a holy God. So don't leave here tonight saying, well, Chris doesn't believe that some sins are actually sins. Not at all. And this is not coming from my Catholic background where I believe there's mortal sins and venial sins. Not at all, okay? All sin is an offense against a holy God. We got that, right? But the Bible even makes distinction when it comes to sin. For instance, John 19, 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So here we have Jesus himself making a distinction, right? The Jews who delivered Jesus over to Pilate committed a greater sin which would indicate that there is some categorical difference when it comes to sin. I mean, if there's a greater sin, then there must be a lesser sin, right? There is a degree, there is a difference. Not all sin is the same. Look at, at 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. It says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, we could spend a lot of time discussing what all is going on here in 1 John, specifically chapter 5, but that's not the purpose of our lesson this evening. I mainly want you to notice that John says all sin is wrongdoing, but there is a distinction to be made. And that distinction, that difference, is found here where he says there are sins that lead to death and there's sin that doesn't lead to death. Okay, so what does he mean there? Well, what he is saying is, is all sin is wrongdoing on the side of God. However, not all sin is the same. And the very fact that Jesus says that there is a greater sin or that John states there is two particular types of sins, shows that this notion that a sin is a sin is a sin is not exactly accurate. You look in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus said that speaking against the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven. However, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 23, as part of those seven woes that Jesus pronounced upon the Pharisees, one of them was that they were neglecting the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faith. Jesus' point is clear the failure to tithe a minuscule amount of spices was much less severe or much less of a sin than the failure to administer justice and mercy to your fellow man. Okay, so we got that. Let's move to a specific example in the Bible, a very personal example with David. David is known for two monumental moments in his life, really, isn't he? The defeat of Goliath and his sin with Bathsheba. And unfortunately, he's probably always going to be remembered more for the latter than the former, maybe. But it's his sin with Bathsheba that we see what we're talking about play out. David is forever linked with the sin of adultery, which is a shame because by and large, David did some really good things in his life. I mean, God even said he was a man after his own heart. He had sex with another man's wife. And if that weren't bad enough, he sought by any means necessary to have her for himself, which meant arranging the murder of her husband, Uriah. Now plan A was to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, off the battlefield and back home. And then he could be with her, she could have this baby, and Uriah would think that the baby is his and everything would be back to normal. The secret sin of David and Bathsheba could be swept under the rug and life could go on. Nobody's character would be stained. But there's one thing that King David didn't count on, and that is the loyalty of Uriah. In fact, at this point in the story, David looks like anything but a hero, even though he had been early on. He looks like the villain, doesn't he? And Uriah looks like the hero. Uriah refused to leave his men on the battlefield. He didn't think that that was fair, and so plan A falls apart. David tries a different approach. He invites Uriah to his house to get him drunk. And with this plan, plan B, David is trying to smear his character. David is thinking, I'll get Uriah drunk so that his judgment is blurred. I'll send him home. He'll be a disgrace. And in his drunken stupor, he'll lose his nobility. But Uriah refuses to go home. And so David turns to plan C. David's desperate. And this is his last-ditch effort to do something about the problem. And so he arranges for Uriah to be killed, but to make it look like he was killed in battle, when in reality the whole thing was staged. And notice how far David has fallen. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him, so that he may be struck down and die. It was bad enough that David had been caught sleeping with another man's wife. What's even worse is now he is planning to have that woman's husband killed. And did you notice 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14? Now, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. You know what that letter was? It was basically Uriah's death warrant. Did you notice what it says? He sent it by who? Uriah. What a despicable human being, right? that David is going to give this death warrant. He is going to send it to Joab, and he's going to send it by Uriah. Uriah is going to take his death warrant and deliver it himself, by his own hand, to Joab. And at this point, you're wondering, or at least I do, is this David being so arrogant? I mean, has the crown cut off the circulation to his head? I mean, what a despicable human being, right? The godly man who defeated Goliath and brought victory for Israel is now about as far away from God as you can imagine. And we know that the orders are carried out. We know that Uriah dies and that David is free to take Bathsheba as his wife. And then the prophet Nathan comes on the scene and he tells that parable about this gentleman who owned one little ewe lamb that was cute and adorable and it was like a family pet. And there was a neighbor to this man who was very wealthy and he had a whole flock of sheep and a visitor comes to town to visit that wealthy man and instead of taking from his abundance, he takes that one little ewe lamb that was so adored and was part of that man's family. He takes it and he slaughters it and he serves it up to his guest. And Nathan tells David this story and David becomes incensed. I mean, he's ready to stone the man. He's ready to kill him for doing what he did. And Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man. You are that man. David paint, or excuse me, Nathan paints a, a picture-perfect portrait of sin. And David comes to the realization that he is that portrait that he is that picture. And so David is left with no other recourse but to fall on his knees and fall on his face and ask God for forgiveness. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and following, let's go ahead and look at this. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Because remember, under old law, David should have been stoned twice, okay? But he's not. Nevertheless, because by his deed, this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So there'd still be consequences, right? And then it says, then Nathan went to his house. So there was a price to pay for his sin, but David found forgiveness. Now let me ask you this. Is this the only time in David's life that he had sinned? I mean, surely not, right? Obviously not. I mean, we have other instances recorded this isn't the only time he had sinned, but it's the only th- time he did something. Let me explain. Turn to Kings, 1 Kings chapter 15. And in 1 Kings chapter 15, starting in verse 5, it says, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Did you catch that? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, at least on the surface, what I gather from that is David never committed any sin in his life except for that one time, you know, when he he murdered Uriah. Other than that, he was squeaky clean. But is that what God intends for me to take away from that passage? I mean, obviously, that would be a contradiction of Scripture because we know of other instances where David sinned. Even if we didn't have things recorded in Scripture, we know that any person, any imperfect human being is going to sin more than once, right? So David did right in the eyes of the Lord and did everything that God commanded him except for that little issue with Bathsheba and Uriah. Well, we know that that is not true, and so there has to be another explanation. Here it is. In the matter of Bathsheba and her husband, David willfully and deliberately turned his back on God. He made a choice not to follow all that God had commanded of him. And that is the distinction. This was a a high-handed thing that David did, his sin with Bathsheba. He had many opportunities to do the right thing. And there were many points along the way that he could have stopped and turned around and did the right thing. In fact, it should have started with doing the right thing that night on the rooftop when he saw her bathing, right? He should have cut it off right then. But even so, even though he had committed sin, there were several points along the way that he could have stopped himself, that he could have made all this right. But with his pride, with his nobility and his position, apparently that's not something he was willing to do. David was living in open rebellion He wasn't repentant. We know that because Nathan came on the scene for the sole purpose of pointing out this sin and pointing out how far David had fallen from God, right? And so David was not following God. This wasn't one of those times where David accidentally did something. This wasn't some sin of ignorance that he didn't know what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was in a lifestyle. This was a lifestyle, and something had to change. David might have committed other sins that could be classified as heat-of-the-moment sins. You know, things that we do in the heat of the moment that we regret later, but this is not one of them. This sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah was a choice to live life on his own terms, and that's what makes it different than the other sins in his life, and that's what is being talked about, or that's the explanation, I should say, of 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5. If you look at 1 John 1 7 it reads but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin wait a minute you mean that I can walk in the light and still sin yeah that's what it says there is a difference in walking in the light and walking in darkness if you're walking in darkness you have no, um, you have no thought or no desire to do what God would have you to do. You are in a lost state. You are living in open rebellion toward God. And that's fine with you. That's called living in darkness. That's called being lost. But you know, as well as I do, that as Christians, we still sin, but we are walking in the light. Which means that we confess our sins, we repent, and we are forgiven as we continue walking in the light. In other words, it's not a lifestyle that we are living a life of sin. Our lifestyle or our life is living in the light. And see, that's where we get off track so often, is we assume, well, I'm walking in the light, I sin, now I'm walking in darkness. Okay, I repent, now I'm walking back in the light. That's not what John's driving at here. And I don't believe that's doing Scripture justice. There is a sin, as John talks about, that leads to death, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. What's the difference? What's the distinction? Well, the sin that leads to death is is a lifestyle. It's living in sin. It's saying that I, I don't care what God has to say. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. That's where David found himself in his sin with Bathsheba. It caused him to do some unthinkable things, some desperate things like killing Uriah but he was forgiven. We are forgiven. And when we're walking in the light, we have forgiveness. One sin doesn't put us out into the darkness. What does is when we make a conscious decision to say, I don't care what God says. I'm going to live life on my own terms. You see the difference? Let's illustrate it this way. My daughter Zoe likes to bake, pretty good baker. And when she was younger, she made some pretty good stuff, but she also made a pretty good mess in the kitchen. And so I would come home, and there would be flour coating the cabinets, and there would be cake batter all over the walls. And I could have walked into the kitchen and started railing on her. What are you doing? You made a huge mess. You better clean this up but I didn't because she would make cupcakes, she would make cookies for me, or for Libby, or for both. She wanted to please us. She wanted to give us these things as a gift, and so you look look past the mess, right? But what if I walked in the kitchen, and she had gotten out the mixer, the blender, whatever, and she turned it on high, and she moved it around the room just so she could spread cake batter and everything else all over the place? What if her whole intention was just to make a mess? She didn't care about what she baked. She wasn't trying to please us in any way. She was trying to make a mess because she wanted to make us mad. Those are two very different scenarios because of the intention, right? Don't you think that as a father, I should be able to make a distinction between those two? And don't you think that our Heavenly Father can make a distinction between those of us who are messy Christians, who are trying to do the right thing, but we kind of make a mess and we confess and we repent? Don't you think there's a difference in that and the person who says, I don't care what God wants. I'm not trying to please Him. I'm trying to please me. I'm living for me. I'm living for the moment. Don't you think there's a difference between those two? And so when we talk about a sin that leads to death, and a sin that doesn't lead to death, what we're talking about is that distinction. It's sinning while walking in the light and sinning while walking in darkness. One's a lifestyle. One is a lifestyle too, I guess. But It's a lifestyle that says, I, I, I want to go in a godly direction. I want to please God. But I fall. I confess, I pick myself back up, and I move forward, right? There was a time... There was a time when when all of us probably walked in darkness. All of us found ourselves on the outside looking in. We didn't have fellowship with God. You know, there was a time when David was a man after God's own heart. He sinned, but God says that he never turned aside from following him. But there was a time when David did turn aside from following God and lived in open rebellion, when he refused to do God's will. He refused to repent, and that was a far different matter than following God, but sinning from time to time. And the same is true with us. Walking in the light should give us assurance. We don't have to live in fear of losing our salvation over one sin or like the preacher told this young lady that if you sin at 12, 14, and 55 seconds and you don't repent and you die at 12, 14, and 56 seconds, you're going to live lost. You're going to live in hell for all eternity. We don't have to live believing that or fearing that. We have a distinction There is a difference in those who walk in the light and those who do not. Hopefully, hopefully you live with assurance. Hopefully you're not one that lives thinking that every second of the day I'm risking my salvation because I messed up or I slipped up. But this is not to get anyone off the hook either. If you're someone who is living a life in open rebellion toward God, maybe you even think that, you know, you love God and you you want to do God's will, but you're refusing to do that through a certain sin in your life. Don't be fooled. When we purposefully, consciously, willfully choose to do our own will while we ignore God's, then that's a problem. And so I, I don't know what your state is this evening. I mean, if you're someone who, is, who needs the prayers and the support of this church family because perhaps you became a child of God and you veered off track and maybe you're not living your life in a godly direction at this moment. Maybe you're not walking in the light. Or maybe you're someone who, who just is walking in the light, but you still struggle with assurance and, and you need prayers. Or maybe you've not even begun a daily walk. That begins with baptism. Actually, it begins with faith, and then repenting and confessing, and then baptism. But if you hadn't done that, then take care of that tonight. We say it every week. Don't leave here without being right with God. Why would you do that? Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That's a terrible bet. Don't bet that you have more time